Welcome to the Pope's Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin with the OSU College of Arts and Sciences. You may notice this introduction sounds a little different than normal. That's because we, like most of the country, are practicing social distancing and working from home as much as possible to try to flatten the curve of COVID-19 cases. We recorded this episode in the studio back on March 6th, which was only a few weeks ago, but felt like an entirely different world. I spoke with Matt Cabine from the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics, who talks about not just the novel coronavirus, but more broadly about viruses and bacteria. His passion for the subject is obvious, and there are even a few explanations of the immune system you've probably never heard before. The coronavirus, of course, is, and I, and I realize that's not the technical name for it, but that's what I'm going to call it, Okay, uh, is all over the news right now. I know that there are coronaviruses that cause, I think it's the cold. Yeah, the common right? cold. That's common right. cold. Um, but this one is new. Mm-hmm. It's novel. Mm-hmm. Why is this something that has people so concerned? One of the reasons why. So this is the third zoonotic coronavirus that has uh, resulted in the human epidemic. And so typically... Uh, coronavirus is like the common cold. That's already a human virus. But the other two that moved from animals to humans, that's what I mean by zoonotic, was the uh, SARS virus back in uh, 2003, 2004, and then the MERS, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, more recently. And uh, the reason why it's such a big deal right now, I think, or there are a couple of reasons. One is, uh, although 20 years doesn't feel like that long ago to me now, um, the world has changed a lot in those last 20 years. For example, there's 10 times more air travel today than there was in, in 2004. Wow. So people are moving around, and mm-hmm. uh, that makes a virus more easily spread around the globe. And so some of the panic is because of, of that, because of the increased risk of spread, and because this particular virus, unlike some of the other ones we've seen, unlike SARS and MERS, um, the, the new coronavirus, by the way, is so the disease is called COVID-19, mm-hmm. named after the year that it was discovered last year, and the name of the virus itself is uh, SARS-CoV-2. So it's a coronavirus uh, number two. Um, anyway, this uh, virus is, is more easily spread by human-to-human transmission, and so we have a couple things going on. One is that people are moving around the globe more than they ever were before, and the second, I think, is some fear caused by uh, the fact that this virus happened to be centered in China. And China, as we know today in global commerce, is a real manufacturing powerhouse. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of take it for granted that we go to a store and we pick something up off the shelf. It got there to that shelf somehow. It was Mm -hmm. manufactured somewhere and it was transported to that shelf. And so all of that back-end logistics that we can easily just forget about, oftentimes the manufacturing of something begins in China. And if if people can't get to work in China, if truck drivers can't bring their loads to the dock where it can be loaded on ships and brought over to the United States, we have trouble with the supply chain. And that's why we've seen, for example, as we're recording right now, uh, the the stock market has been up and down and up and Mm -hmm. down at the moment. It's a little bit down for fears that it's going to disrupt the global business. And um, you just made a point about um, goods being on the shelves. How much of a concern is there about goods carrying this? As far as goods like coming from another country at, to our country, uh, the United States Postal Service has said that there's a very low risk of 
contracting the virus from like something that's transported. And the reason why is that one of the things that we know about the coronavirus so far, one of the first things that epidemiologists ask when they're talking about transmission of the disease is how long do these viruses last mm -hmm. on a surface? Like, a, and we call that a fomite, a surface, an inanimate object that might carry viruses. And there's some evidence that fomites are a means of transmission of this virus. So for example, if I'm in this room and I sneeze on, all over mm -hmm. this desk, and the next person that comes in this room is you, and you eat your lunch on this desk, <laughs> well, there's like a, a chance that you might contract the coronavirus. But as far as something like being mailed over a, a long period of time, so not minutes or hours, but days, it appears that this um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, is not able to survive for really long time periods on inanimate mm. surfaces. So, so very low concern that you'd pick something up in a store and it would have coronavirus on it. But something that is shipped very locally could potentially be a risk. Sure. I mean, in the sense that, you know, if you handled an object that somebody who was infected handled moments before, mm -hmm. you know, like so someone's stocking a shelf in a, right. in a, a supermarket and then sneezes on the can of beans right before he puts it on the shelf and then you walk by 10 minutes later and pick up that can of beans, maybe. But that's not really considered something that would be a high risk. Mm. As far as viruses being contagious, is it pretty standard the ways that they are transmitted? Respiratory viruses, like these coronaviruses, they infect lung tissue. Mm. So they get breathed in. They typically get breathed in through aerosol. Somebody sneezes and you inhale droplets that are in the air. When a person sneezes, you know, you, you sneeze at like 100 miles an hour <laughs> and you make all these tiny little droplets, some of which are bigger and some of which are smaller. Now, the big ones, they're going to land on surfaces near you. They're the things that you see, someone sneezes and you, you see a bunch of spray on the desk. Mm -hmm. But then the really tiny particles that can still have virus in them, they can float through the air for, for some time. And it's those ones that typically infect people with respiratory viruses. In contrast to a virus like HIV, HIV is a, a deadly virus, but not a respiratory pathogen. Mm -hmm. You don't get it by breathing it in. I know I've seen a lot of talk online about uh, coronavirus versus the flu, and uh, you know, people sort of underestimate how serious the flu is. What are the differences that we're aware of right now as far as the coronavirus versus the flu and how seriously we should take the potential of a coronavirus outbreak and um, what the results will be. The real key questions there for how this compares with the flu, now beyond the molecular differences, because there are quite a few molecular differences between coronavirus and flu virus with respect to the receptors that they latch onto to get into cells and so forth, the real key question is, uh, what's the mortality rate? Mm -hmm. So when people get this virus, is it a, a more deadly virus than the flu virus? Right? As it stands right now, many fewer people have died from the coronavirus than die from the flu. And the reason why is because many, many more people get the flu than get the coronavirus at the present moment. So that, that key datum of the mortality rate, the way we know what that is, is we, it's just a fraction. Mm -hmm. And the numerator is the number of people who have died, and the denominator is the number of people who have contracted the, the disease. Now the numerator is easy to get. It's easy to know how many people die because they're dead and mm. you have to do something with those bodies. But it's much harder to ascertain how many people have had that disease because if somebody gets COVID-19, they get a very mild case, maybe all they get is the, the sniffles. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but I don't go to the doctor when I get the sniffles. Right. So I would never even be picked up as having had the disease. So right now, the relative mortality rate of COVID-19 seems to be higher than the flu. So about maybe 2.5 to 3% versus a tenth of a percent mm -hmm. for the flu. But 
the numbers aren't all in yet. And as you see study after study rolling out, you know, this, this is a really young outbreak, only a few months old. And the studies that have been published so far show widely varying mortality rates. So the, the answer is we still don't know how severe this is uh, relative to the flu. Mm -hmm. but, it, but, but for us here at, at Oklahoma State, I think the risk of getting the flu is a more sort of proximate risk than the risk of contracting COVID-19. Um, which leads me to several questions. One, if you are doing the things you should do to pr protect yourself from the flu, if you're washing your hands and um, getting enough rest and uh, covering your mouth when you sneeze, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. are all those precautions the same things that you should take to prevent the coronavirus? Yes, for sure. Yeah, so the same measures that you take to prevent infection. Really, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. So the more things you can do to prevent getting sick, I mean, you're helping yourself anyway. Mm -hmm. It sort of takes on a heightened importance when there's some kind of an outbreak of a, of a new disease because there's an enhanced risk of getting that disease. But just like in flu season, the, the number one thing you can do is to wash your hands. Mm -hmm. And the number one mistake people make besides not washing their hands is not washing their hands for long enough mm -hmm. to really get the germs off your hands. And, and hand washing is, I mean, I can't overstate it, it's incredibly effective mm -hmm. for being able to kill germs. I mean, soap and water and that rubbing of your hands, it, it kills germs. That's why it's what surgeons do before mm -hmm. they go into surgery. But you're really supposed to wash your hands with soap and water for 20 seconds. Now, 20 seconds feels like an eternity mm. when you're standing there at the sink. The sort of common thing that, that you hear is sing happy birthday to yourself twice. And if you do that next time you use the restroom, it'll feel like you're there for a really long time scrubbing your hands. But if you're serious about uh, preventing disease before you eat, before you put your hands to your face, you should before you put in your contact lenses, you should be washing your hands for 20 full seconds. Mm. And... Uh, I know that there's a lot of people who will sort of take a cheat and use some sanitizer, which is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. What is the difference uh, as far as effectiveness between sanitizer and washing? Well, I'm not sure what exactly the difference is in terms of effectiveness. Sanitizer works in a different way. It works by actually just directly killing germs with the active ingredient of ethanol. So mm -hmm. It's the same alcohol that you drink in, in, in vodka or whiskey. It's not very good at removing dirt, obviously, mm -hmm. but it is good at, at killing germs. So if you didn't have access to a, um, a hand washing facility, like a real sink with running water, then a hand sanitizer would be uh, a great option. Mm -hmm. But you're better off to wash your hands with soap and water. At least sometimes during the day, yeah. yeah. Just, just for, for total uh, for cleanliness. Again, there's a reason why if you're a surgeon, uh, you don't just put some Purell on your hands. You really scrub your hands with soap and water for an extended period of time. As a microbiologist, do you wash your hands a lot? Do you find yourself just drawn to, I need to go wash my hands? Oddly enough, I'd say not really. No. <laughs> and, and, and the funny thing is, you know, over my career, I've seen a lot of microbiologists in the, in the washroom, mm. and some of them don't even wash their hands at all, which is hilarious and, and sort of scary. Um, if I'm working in the lab a lot, I do find that I wash my hands a lot more frequently. Mm. In the lab, you're, you're handling bacteria. Of course, then you're washing your hands, and um, I don't know about you, but my hands dry out terribly in the mm -hmm. winter, so I'm always putting moisturizer on them to try to keep them from cracking. Um, but but being aware of that situation, I mean, the way I run my own life and and you know teach my children uh, to to sing happy birthday to yourself mm -hmm. twice, and and the, because the, the most common mistake, I mean, I'm tempted to do it too. You know, you, you use the bathroom, and then you you want to wash your hands for five seconds and mm -hmm. then be done. Are there things you hear people say about? really kind of anything related to microbiology that you feel like is just a common misunderstanding people have about viruses, bacteria, 
a any of that? Hmm. I guess there are a lot of common misconceptions <laughs> about uh, viruses and bacteria. One that I hope most people at this point have heard is that um, antibiotics do not work for a viral mm. infection. Antibiotics are molecules that specifically inhibit the growth processes of bacterial cells, and they do not inhibit the growth process of viral cells. So if you have a, a common cold and you go and you get an antibiotic, that antibiotic is going to do nothing. Now there's an important distinction to be made here because especially in, in outbreak cases like what's happening right now with COVID-19, sometimes patients are given antibiotics nonetheless and they help people uh, to live. Mm. And the reason why is because oftentimes when someone gets a viral infection, they're more susceptible to a secondary bacterial infection. And the antibiotics are stopping that secondary bacterial infection, not the primary mm -hmm. viral infection. So it could stop somebody from dying of a bacterial infection, but if you have a, a viral infection, antibiotics do nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one common misconception. What is the difference between a virus and a bacterium? Uh, yeah. There are differences. I couldn't tell you the characteristics that separate them. Yeah, viruses and bacteria are very different. A bacteria, the only real thing they have in common is that both can be uh, pathogens, so they mm. can cause disease. Now, not all bacteria cause disease. There are lots of bacteria and microorganisms that are good, mm -hmm. right? We think about uh, fermented products, yogurt and cheese. Those are full of bacteria that are good. You think of our bodies, our guts are full of bacteria, and they're doing good things for us. So it's, it, it may be back to your question of misconceptions. The idea that bacteria are bad just not true, mm -hmm. right? Most bacteria are good and benign and a very small number of them uh, compared to the ones that are out there in the world actually cause disease. Now viruses are a little bit of a different case. Viruses are sort of unique in biology because they sit at the boundary between life and non-life. Mm. So one of the sort of fundamental definitions of what constitutes life is well, all life consists of cells and these cells are able to self-replicate. One cell can become two. Mm. My, one of my favorite quotes from biology is from Jacques Monod, who is one of the, the uh, early sort of bacteriologists. And he says, the dream of every cell is to become two cells. <laughs> and so a lot of what cells devote their energy to is the growing and dividing. Now viruses, they can't do that on their own, which is why I say they sit on the boundary of life and non-life. They cannot replicate themselves. The only way that they have of replicating themselves is to hijack the molecular machinery of a host cell. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say all viruses are sort of uh, pathogens in a sense, or, or parasites at least, because they can't just go out and do their own thing and mm -hmm. grow and divide. The only way they're growing and dividing is in some host cell. Now that's not to say that viruses invariably cause disease, right? In their natural reservoirs, often in animals, they don't cause any diseases all, at all, but they are using the, the host cells to replicate. So viruses, because they don't need to, I guess, or they don't replicate themselves, are much simpler organisms. They have a much smaller genome, meaning the set of genes that they have can be like 100 or 1,000 times smaller than what you'd see uh, even in a bacteria. Mm. So that's another important sort of uh, molecular difference. But the, the key thing about viruses, when they infect a host cell, there are a number of processes that have to happen in order for them to be able to replicate themselves. They have to be able to attach to a host cell. They have to be able to gain access to the host cell. And then what the host cell does for them is replicate them. So the, the key parts of a virus or a viral particle called a, a virion is the, the viral genome, which 
again, a, another distinction between viruses and bacteria and, and the rest of life, actually, mm. we all store our genes, we all store that information in the form of DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, highly stable molecule. Viruses have much more flexibility in what their genomes can be made of. Some have DNA genomes, some have RNA genomes. Mm. Some have genomes that are made of double-stranded RNA and some that are made of single-stranded RNA. For example, the flu virus uses single-stranded RNA and so does the coronavirus. So they need to get their genomes, whether it's DNA or RNA, into the host cell and the host cell needs to replicate those genomes. And then also the genes in those genomes are then transcribed into proteins and the proteins typically make, they, they, either, they make proteins that are involved in that replication process or they make the proteins that sort of compose the virus coat that encapsulates the, the genome. Mm. So once it gets into the cell, it has to have a, a means to hijack the host cell machinery and replicate many copies of itself, and then it has to have a way of getting back out of the cell. And so our efforts at trying to stop viruses, whether that virus is HIV or the flu or the coronavirus, is aimed at stopping one of those processes, either the initial attachment of the virus to the host cell or the ability of the virus to replicate within the host cell or the ability of the virus to get back out of the host mm. cell. How does an antiviral work? Okay, so all of the antivirals, as I said, that there are these key steps for a virus to be able to infect a host cell. And so all antivirals are aimed at blocking one of those processes. Mm. So for example, I'll, I'll use as an example sort of the emerging data that we have about SARS-CoV-2, which is the causative agent of COVID-19. And one of the first steps in that virus being able to attach to a host cell, this virus has a, a protein on its surface called the spike protein, so named because it looks like a spike. Actually, the coronaviruses are named coronaviruses because they're covered in these little spiky structures that makes them look sort of like a crown, right? Corona uh, means a crown. Okay. So these spike proteins are what allow the virus to gain entry to the cell. They, they um, attached to a specific receptor on the host cell surface that allows them to be internalized. But in order for them to effectively engage with the host cell, that spike protein has to be cleaved by an enzyme known as a protease. And a protease is just an enzyme that cuts another protein. Mm -hmm. So that spike protein has to be cut by a, a protease that's provided by the host cell. Mm -hmm. So one antiviral strategy that has been shown at least in principle to work for SARS-CoV-2 is to use a, a drug that inhibits that protease. If that protease can't cut the spike protein, now the virus has much more limited access to the host cell. It, it can't get in, so to speak. Another um, sort of experimental drug that's underway, or experimental drug that's being tested right now is this drug called um, rem remdesivir. And this is uh, by a, a company called Gilead Biosciences. It was originally um, developed, I think, for a, a different virus. I, I can't remember what virus but it was sort of an experimental drug that was put on the shelf for a while. And, and what this is, this um, antiviral, it looks like one of the building blocks of RNA. And so it blocks the process by which the virus is able to make many copies of its genome within the host cell. So it's just two different processes that are required for viral replication or access into the cell that are being blocked by these antivirals. Mm -hmm. And then when the immune system uh, Obviously, our immune systems are always fighting off bacteria and viruses and whatever. How does that work? Yeah, so our immune system is like a, you can think of it as sort of like surveillance agents, mm -hmm. right? They're always checking to see if there's someone there that shouldn't be there. 
And you sort of can divide our immune response into two categories. And the technical names for them are the innate immune response and the adaptive immune response. And the innate immune response is sort of like a security guard who's looking for anything out of place. And the adaptive immune response is looking for specific bad actors. That uh, I've seen this uh, criminal before, I see you again, and I'm specifically taking out this one person. So when I teach this in class, I teach that the innate immune system is sort of like uh, a police officer looking for suspicious activity, and the adaptive immune system is more like an FBI agent who has like a dossier mm -hmm. of particular people, and they know exactly whom they're looking for. And so um, something unusual about viruses, or, or maybe unique to viruses, or, or uh, specific to viruses, is that viruses are always replicating inside host cells. So you can't be surveilling for viruses outside cells. You're mostly surveilling for them inside cells. So there are specific immune receptors inside cells that are looking for viral genomes, for example, DNA or RNA, inside the cell where it shouldn't be. And then those cells, when they're infected with virus, they signal to the immune system and say, hey, I'm infected. And that results in a lot of the things that we see as symptoms of, mm -hmm. of a cold. That results in the inflammation, the fever, the pain, um, as those cells are, are being infected and as the immune system is trying to take care of them. And sometimes those cells will die uh, as a way of trying to limit the spread of infection. If you shut down a cell where a virus is trying to replicate, now it's not going to be able to replicate effectively. And that's also where the adaptive immune system can come in to send sort of uh, these assassins, cellular assassins to come and specifically kill cells that are infected with virus, again, in an effort to limit the spread of the virus. And honestly, our immune system does a pretty good job of it. We, we feel kind of cruddy when the immune system is active. A lot of the symptoms that we associate with the common cold, for example, it's not the virus that's really doing that. It's mostly our immune response that makes us feel so poorly. But the upside of it is that it's able to, to clear it. And the same process occurs for bacteria as well. It's just that Whereas for viruses, our immune system is primarily looking, primarily looking inside cells because it's trying to find cells that are infected with a virus inside. For bacteria, it's also looking outside cells for bacteria that might be in intracellular, uh, intracellular space, so in the spaces between cells, looking for hallmarks, molecular hallmarks of a bacterium, things that a bacterium has like a flagellum mm -hmm. that our cells do not. Mm -hmm. Let me state the obvious. The immune system is amazing. Sure it's, is. Whew. When you're talking about the FBI agent, you're, I assume you're talking about you've been infected before or you've had the immunization against something, right? I mean, that's how that's how it gets the information that that's this is something right. to watch for. Do we know how that works? How they remember? Oh yeah. How how does that work? Yeah. So that's that's the magic of adaptive immunity, and that's the magic of vaccination. And I should say, vaccination is one of the miracle stories mm -hmm. of scientific advances being able to cure human disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, vaccines were first started to be developed in the, the 18th century, so the, the 1700s. Mm -hmm. And some of the greatest success stories, like the eradication of smallpox, mm -hmm. is due to vaccination. And the power of vaccination comes from the adaptive immune system. So our bodies, try to explain this briefly, <laughs> Uh, so our bodies have this uh, amazing diversity of immune cells, cells that are able to detect different molecular patterns that we call antigens mm. that are associated with pathogens or really anything. 
right? So our body, when we're developing, in fact, when we're developing in our mother's wombs, mm. that's when our immune system is developing. And there's sort of no way for the immune system to know a priori what it's going to see out in the wide world. So it prepares for everything, right? <laughs> so the, the analogy I like to make is like you're going to go into some building and you know there's a locked door in the building and you know nothing about the key that's going to open that locked door. So the only way that you have of being able from the get-go to be sure that you're going to be able to get that in that door is to make every key possible. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of how our adaptive immune systems work. There's a specialized set of genes that can sort of be mixed and matched so that you can get millions or billions of different combinations. And so our bodies make cells that are able to match up. Each cell is different, right? So we make billions of cells and each cell has a different specificity for the thing that it recognizes. And then those cells go through a purification process to make sure they don't recognize things that are in our own bodies and attack our own bodies. Mm -hmm. And then with everything that's left, our bodies are just sort of primed for whatever they see out in the wide world. And then when our immune system sees something, either because we get a disease, for example, or because we get an immunization, we sort of purposely give our body something that looks at the molecular level like a disease-causing agent, whether it's a, a killed version of that virus or bacterium or just a protein from that virus or bacterium. The cells that happen to match with that antigen, they see that antigen and then that particular cell undergoes an expansion. So now we have a whole bunch of cells that are specific to that one antigen. Mm. And when that happens, once our bodies have that we call primary adaptive immune response, one of the results of that is that our bodies also produce these cells known as memory cells. And those memory cells continue to circulate around for a long time, you know, years or even our whole lives. And those memory cells now are primed so that if we ever see that antigen again, if we ever see that pathogen again, instead of having to go through the whole primary response process, our bodies are already ready to go. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you get a measles vaccine as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then if you ever get exposed to measles, you ought to not even show any symptoms because your immune system's already primed to attack the measles virus if, if you see it. We talked earlier about the ways bacteria can be beneficial. Mm. Are there any beneficial viruses that we're aware of? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, so I would say in the average person's experience, probably not. You're not going to use a product that has a virus in it. <laughs> but... Pro-viral. Uh, well, uh, no, <laughs> let me walk that back. There are a couple instances in which a virus might be useful. All right. So one is in biotechnology. So viruses are used, mod highly modified viruses are used as delivery agents for DNA. When we talked before about how a virus works, one of the things that a virus does is it fuses with a host cell and then it puts its genome into the host cell. And sometimes that, that nucleic acid, that DNA, even gets incorporated into the host's own chromosome, the host's own genome. And so it's a way in biotechnology of getting genes into cells. Mm. So that can be useful if you need cells that produce a specific thing, some kind of a therapeutic agent, for example. And then there's also, this is a bit of a controversial topic, I guess, but um, you, in principle, could use a virus as a gene therapy agent to deliver, let's say, a working copy of a gene to somebody who had a genetic disease who had a defective copy of a gene. Mm. So it's useful in biotechnology. And there's one other instance that readily comes to mind that is really a, a, a positive use of viruses, and that is a use of bacteriophages, which are viruses whose hosts are bacteria. Mm. So there's a whole 
group of viruses. And, and when you think of a virus, if, if when I say virus, what you picture is this thing that has sort of a polyhedral head and then mm. a little tail and like some little uh, feet on the bottom. That's like a bacteriophage. Uh, that's the sort of the classic view of a bacteriophage. The, the viruses that infect us, like the HIV virus or the coronavirus, they're, they're just like little spheres with mm -hmm. these little spikes on them. So the cool thing about bacteriophages are that they, because bacteria are their host, they can eradicate bacterial cells. And so phage therapy is a real thing that is sometimes used for infections that are really resistant, let's say, to antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not a big thing in the United States. There are a couple institutes around the country. There's one in the, the nation of Georgia, not mm -hmm. the state of Georgia, mm -hmm. called the Eliava Institute, where they study phage therapy. And so if a person has a, a, a bacterial infection that's not responsive to antibiotics, if you can find the right phages, you might be able to wipe out that bacterial infection with the bacteriophage without any sort of side effects to the human because those viruses don't affect human cells. They don't, they don't have any of the proteins they need to interact mm -hmm. with human cells. They can only interact with their natural host um, bacteria. Now the drawback of phage therapy compared to something like antibiotics, most antibiotics are what we call broad spectrum. So we don't need to know exactly what you're infected with. We can just give you an antibiotic and chances are it's gonna kill whatever you're infected with <laughs> if it's a bacteria. Phages are extremely specific. They will attack one species or maybe even just one strain of a species. So they're extremely narrow spectrum. So if you're gonna effectively use phages for therapy, you have to know exactly what the person is infected with mm -hmm. and again give them the right phages to wipe out that infection. So you're talking again about antibiotics. I know I asked you about antivirals, but how do antibiotics work? Yeah, so antibiotics, all of them have in common a general mechanism by which they stop bacteria from performing some kind of a process that's essential for bacterial growth or, or cell division. But that said, different classes of antibiotics work in different ways. So you know the first antibiotic that, that came into real popular use? Penicillin. Penicillin, exactly right. Which was discovered by accident, which I love. That's right, by Alexander Fleming, in fact. And so penicillin is what's called a beta-lactam antibiotic. So it's the founding member of a large class of antibiotics that now includes tens or hundreds of, of different antibiotics, but all these beta-lactam antibiotics, what they do is they attack the bacterial cell wall. They inhibit an enzyme that's required for bacterial cell wall synthesis. And so, so all antibiotics, not only do they attack some essential process of bacteria, but it's also something that differs between bacteria and human cells, mm. right? So that they can sort of differentiate, kill bacteria while leaving our cells alone. Mm -hmm. Our cells don't have a cell wall. And so that's why beta-lactam antibiotics are so effective. They target a process that's essential for bacteria and also specific to bacteria. And then a number of other antibiotics, there are a number of classes of antibiotics that all stop bacterial protein synthesis. Proteins are synthesized by the ribosome. Ribosomes in human cells are different enough from the ribosomes in bacterial cells that there are many um, antibiotic agents that specifically target bacterial ribosomes. So if you've ever heard of canamycin or amicacin, these are a class of antibiotics called aminoglycosides. They target uh, bacterial translation, so protein synthesis. Tetracyclines, you've probably heard of, or uh, doxycycline, those all uh, target bacterial protein synthesis. Like the, the Z-Pak, azithromycin, mm -hmm. right, that's a macrolide antibiotic, also targets a bacterial protein synthesis. So that's a very, very common target of antibiotics. But the sort of take-home message is, all antibiotics work by specifically targeting some essential process that bacteria need to grow and divide. Mm.
we started, of course, talking about viruses, specifically coronavirus. Um, but I believe you spend more of your time, your research time, on bacteria. Is that right. right? Oh, yes. Um, why, why bacteria? Why did that interest you? Oh, boy. I thought when I first started graduate school, I thought I was going to study cancer. <laughs> and then I got interested in RNA. Mm. And then while I was in my first year of graduate school, I ended up having a random conversation with a guy in a stairwell of a biology building. <laughs> and he told me that there was this professor that I should meet. And I met with her and I joined her lab and she was working on bacteria. And um, it was just so fascinating, sort of the mysteries that bacteria still hold. We look at where we think about how long bacteria have been studied for. You know, they're one of the sort of founding members of, of biology. We've been studying for them for the better part of a century now um, at the molecular level. Mm. And if you look at these old micrographs of bacteria, you know, you slice a bacterium open and you look inside, it looks like they're just like a bag of random stuff. <laughs> but it turns out that bacteria are highly organized and there's still a lot of mis mysteries about what bacteria can do. You think of a, a very well-studied bacterium like E. coli, mm -hmm. there are still many genes in that bacterium and we still don't know what they do. And so I'm sort of a genes and molecules guy. Um, that captured my interest and that's still what we do in our lab today. We use two different model species to try to figure out how those genes and proteins are enabling them to respond to different things in their environment and enact different behaviors. Mm. Okay, and you we're just talking about grad school. You went to undergrad at UConn. That's right. University of Connecticut, right? Your uh, grad school was Yale. Mm -hmm. Where are you from originally? I'm from Connecticut, about 12 miles away from New Haven, which is okay. where Yale is. Okay. How long were you at Yale? I guess like six years or so. And then I know you ended up teaching at Harvard. Yes, I did a postdoc at Harvard where I yeah, taught and did research. So we, uh, among our students, we don't run into a lot of people who were at Yale and or Harvard, um, some of our faculty. Mm -hmm. How did you end up in Stillwater? This is a long way from the Ivy League, Yeah, location-wise at least. That's true. I mean, to be honest with you, the first time I ever set foot in Oklahoma was to interview for a job there. Mm -hmm. um, but it appealed for a number of reasons, and that, that visit was really a turning point for me. Um, the cowboy family, as sort of trite as it sounds, it's the real deal. Mm. Uh, and my experience on campus, it reminded me of my undergraduate experience. I really like the energy that's at a big state school mm. um, and the sports that are going on campus. Um, OSU has a beautiful campus and I was really positively impacted by the students whom I met and by the faculty whom I met. Um, in the Ivy League, sometimes it becomes sort of like an individual sort of sinks or swims. I've had professors at Harvard tell me that it seems like they just want to hire a bunch of Nobel Prize winners mm. instead of having like a department that really people care about one another. Mm. And that's what I saw here at OSU is a department where colleagues help each other all the time and truly do uh, care about one another. And also, I, you know, I'm a, a family man. Uh, the living in a town like this really appealed to me. I liked that the that students, um, this, my experience here with students is that they are not entitled they are really uh, highly respectful, and that's the kind of culture in which I want to raise my kids and the kind of culture in which uh, I want to be. Mm. So why did microbiology interest you? So microbiology interested me not only because bacteria still have a lot of secrets and that, that we have to unlock, but also the relative simplicity of bacteria makes them appealing to work with. Uh, just 
for a lifestyle stake. Mm. If you're working with human cells, or you're working with larger animals, there are all sorts of complications that mm. come with that. You have to feed your cells every day or you have to, to take care of all these animals. And I like the relative simplicity of a bacterial model system that lets you, you can put things in the freezer if you need to, to wait a little while. And also I'm sort of an impatient when it comes to science. Uh, <laughs> bacteria, they replicate really fast. One of the nicest things about them is that you can get experiments done in short order. Mm. If you're gonna do experiments in a mouse and you have to make a mutant mouse, you're waiting months to make the mutant mouse, but if I wanna know what a mutant does in bacteria, I, I've got the mutant in a week. And so uh, for that reason, it's really uh, a, a fun thing to work about uh, to work on. And then also the amazing diversity of bacteria is just another cool thing uh, about bacteria. They're the most diverse organisms on Earth, bacteria and, and archaea, which are other microorganisms, a third domain of life. Um, they live everywhere on Earth, from Antarctica to undersea thermal vents. And uh, yeah, there's just so much cool stuff to learn about them. You have a lab, of course. Mm -hmm. What sort of research are you doing in that lab? And I'm sure it's, there's probably a lot of it, and I'll bet you could spend forever explaining it. But what sort of research are you doing that you think people will find interesting or that you can explain to someone like me? Sure. <laughs> yeah, so we have two main projects in the lab. My lab is, uh, I've got four PhD students and usually between, I don't know, 10 and 13 undergraduates, and they're divided up into two areas. And so one half of the lab is sort of studying the fundamentals of how what I like to call the bacto-brain works, like how bacteria respond to things in their environment and then act, enact some kind of a behavior. Mm. And so we use a model bacterium known as Bacillus subtilis. It's like a, originally isolated from a bale of hay, I think. Wow. Um, it's non-pathogenic. It simply uses a model organism. And this species uses this large multi-protein complex. There are a bunch of these complexes that float around in the cell. And it uses these to respond to environmental stress, like salt or acid or even ethanol. And we think that this protein complex works sort of like a rudimentary processor or a computer to sort of connect inputs, sensory inputs, with outputs. And its, it's output is something we call the, the general stress response. And so because of the genetic tractability of these bacteria, it's e easy for us to make mutants, we can test how mixing and matching different components in this protein complex affects the outputs that we get with a given input. And there are also some fundamental questions remaining. We don't know how this complex actually senses stress. We have all mm. these stressors outside the cell. We give cells ethanol or we give them salt. That's outside the cell. And yet these complexes are inside the cell and mediate the response. We don't know what they're actually responding to. Mm -hmm. So we're also trying to work that out and figure out exactly what they're sensing. Now the other half of the lab works on a human pathogen, an opportunistic human pathogen called Pseudomonas aeruginosa, sort of famous for giving people infections when they're already in the hospital because they've been burned, for example, mm. or for giving infections uh, to people who have cystic fibrosis. Now, cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease, but it causes the mucus in the lungs to be very sticky, mm. and so it's very susceptible to getting infections with, with pseudomonas. And in that case, we're studying something called biofilm formation, which is where cells team up and they secrete sort of this sticky substance that holds a bunch of cells together. And once cells are encased in that sticky substance, they're really difficult to treat. Mm. So it's sort of a pressing medical problem. And our view is that trying to prevent it is even better than trying to, to treat these biofilms. But again, we're like signaling molecules, people. So we're interested in the signaling networks that make these cells decide to form biofilms. 
And we've uncovered several new genes and proteins that are involved in that process. And now we're trying to work out exactly how they work and how they fit into that signaling mm. network. So why is microbiology important? Why should a student consider majoring in it? Yeah, microbiology, microbes are all around us, first of all. So microbiology is a very relevant topic just in terms of the way the world works. And also in the age that we live in, we can see how critical microbiology is. We're in the middle right now of a global outbreak of coronavirus, which I would consider falls under the umbrella of microbiology, even if it is sort of virology. Um, but we're also gaining a, a new recognition of just how important microbes are. We've been thinking for a long time of microbes as being sort of the enemies and, and trying to kill them with antibiotics. And as we are facing the specter of antimicrobial resistant bacteria, we sort of our arsenal is sort of running short sometimes when it comes to fighting certain bacterial infections, we're also gaining a new appreciation for the importance of the microbes that are in and on us. We probably these days, most people have heard the term microbiome, mm -hmm. which refers to all of the microbes that live in a particular place, and particularly the microbes that live, like for example, in our guts. That's where most of our bacteria are, but there are bacteria on our skin and in our nostrils and in our ears and everything. And it's becoming increasingly clear that the microbiota or the microbiomes of our bodies are related to our health. Mm -hmm. They're related to diet, they're related to disease status, and I've even begun seeing uh, advertisements on TV for like body soaps that uh, sort of maintain your microbiome and don't wash them away. And so it's a really timely subject, I think, and something that's really important for humans, and especially for students who are considering a, a field in the sciences. Uh, a lot of what we know about biology was learned by microbiologists or learned through microbiology. And uh, for students who are considering a career in the health professions, in medicine or any of the allied health professions, um, microbiology is a critical part of that. If you're gonna be a doctor, you're gonna be seeing patients who have infectious disease. And so it would be important to know something uh, about biology. So I would encourage students um, to consider microbiology as a, as a STEM major, especially if they're considering a career in the, the health sciences. But also even for non-majors, if you're a English major or if you're a business major, uh, take a, a microbiology course uh, because it's really, I think, uh, an important enough topic in our society today that an educated adult ought to know a thing or two about the, the microbes around us and, and how they are uh, can be both friends and foes. Mm. And you, you mentioned the microbiome. Um, I was thinking about that earlier. I uh, spoken to Terrell Conway, who's the department head, and we were talking about the microbiome project that OSU is working on. One thing that Terrell told me that was interesting um, is, yeah, when he started talking about microbiome, I was thinking about, like you just said, like the idea of we have gut bacteria and things like that. But he was saying everything has a microbiome. Clouds have a microbiome, which blew my mind, because why on earth? And he said, we don't know what they do, but yeah. they're there. Um, so they really are everywhere. They're places we're not even thinking of. Exactly right. Um, I, he also was telling me about some of the bacteria that are and only we can only find in like one place on the earth. Mm -hmm. um, he was talking about something like a geyser. Yeah, so there are some bacteria that live. So we usually kill bacteria at high temperatures, right? <laughs> the, the typical way we use to, to kill microorganisms is putting them in a steam autoclave, mm. right? 121 degrees centigrade at high pressure. And there are some microorganisms, they're not bacteria, they're archaea, right? Which look a lot like bacteria, but they're molecularly distinct. And many of these archaea are we call extremophiles. They love extreme conditions. So they are thriving in like an undersea hot vent. So this is where liquid rock is touching cold water 
miles under the sea. So you're thinking about what this environment's like. It's extremely high pressure. It's extremely high temperature, boiling temperature even, in steam. And there are organisms that can live in that place. And in fact, they're so well adapted to live in that place, you say, oh, you just told me about a microorganism that an autoclave can't kill, right? But that organism can't survive like on a table. It can only survive under those extreme conditions. And so it's just incredible how adapted different microorganisms are to live in different places. Like to give you an opposite example from those hyperthermophiles that love high temperature and pressure, there are also bacteria that you can find in Antarctic ice sheets. Mm -hmm. And they're growing at like barely above freezing. Incredible. Mm. Yeah, they, uh, they're survivors. <laughs> they are survivors. And, they, and we think, I had a student ask me the other day about uh, like how, how bacteria sort of adapt to be fit to, in a particular environment. And the truth is, a bacterium that we find in a particular environment, it's already won the fitness battle. Mm. That's why it's there. So out in nature, there's always a competition going on. It's the survival of the fittest, mm -hmm. as, as Darwin said. And so that's happening to bacteria everywhere. We dig up a sample somewhere and we find some bacteria. The bacteria that we find are the ones that won mm. or that are winning today. Right. Yeah, and Terrell was also talking to me about bacteria that we are discovering um, places that we didn't expect, like you were just talking about, and how we're always finding new ones because we're always finding new ways to find them, like the science advances. There are places that we were convinced there was no bacteria that we're finding it now. For example, I'm sure a lot of people have heard the concept that urine is sterile, is not sterile, but there's bacteria there that we couldn't find until mm -hmm. fairly recently, mm -hmm. which also blew my mind, because like, well, no, we've had micro microscopes for a long time, but. Yeah, it's not just microscopes. Right. We have much more sensitive methods now that can detect, let's say, the DNA mm -hmm. that, are, that, that cells have rather than trying to view individual cells in a microscope or mm -hmm. even grow them in the lab. They're, in fact, we think that a very small minority of the bacteria out there can be cultured in a lab. Mm -hmm. Most of them are considered unculturable, which really just means we haven't figured out a way to culture them. I want to thank Matt for taking the time for this discussion, and I hope you and your family are and remain well. And with that, we end this episode, as always, by asking how the arts and sciences are making the world a better place. My opinion is that the arts and sciences are sort of like two branches of the intellect that help one another. Because there's not just one way of knowing. You think about a university and the function of a university. Ostensibly, it's to seek the truth, to find out what's right, what's real. And there are multiple approaches to doing that and to sort of apprehending the truth. One way is the way that I do it in my day job, using the sciences. We design experiments to figure out, we want to know, you know, let's, let's say a man. How does a man work? We want to know the chemicals that he's composed of. We want to know um, uh, the, his body temperature. We want to know, we want an inventory of all the parts. We want to know how the enzymes work, for example. And then you have the psychologist or the anthropologist who wants to know, how does the man behave? And then we have the artist who paints a picture of a person or, or paints a, or makes a sculpture of a person and says, behold, mm. man. Uh, those are all ways of sort of apprehending the truth. And I think the arts and sciences, they make the world a better place through that precise sort of intellectual diversity because 
what we need as people as we go through different phases of our life are different things. There are, we have experiences of beauty, I would say. And sometimes the experience of beauty, one of my favorite ones is, is like figuring out how something works. Mm. You know, there's some elegant molecular mechanism and you have that aha moment and you realize, ah, like, so this is how this works. We, we've been thinking about it wrong all this time or we had no idea and, and now, now we get it. And sometimes you have just a, a moment of gratuitous beauty. You see a beautiful sunset or something like that and it sort of moves you in a way. And I think the same thing happens with the arts. That's, that's the whole point of the arts. You hear a, a poem that moves you in a particular way. You see a sculpture or a painting that sort of elevates you for, for whatever period of time um, and helps you understand more deeply the meaning of life, which is sort of what we're all after in the end.